Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who met his wife while training for the 400 meters in Seattle and is eating gluten-free while lusting after bread, Dave Denniston. friends and welcome back to another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, I am honored to have another guest with us that he's been an entrepreneur. He's done a lot of things. I'm sure it'll be an interesting, wide-ranging conversation. He's done stuff in tech and software and marketing, and most recently into business tax savings. He's the CEO of Strike Tax Advisory, establishing himself as a respected figure in this field. He's particularly focused on R&D tax credits, cost-saving strategies, and budget allocation. So a lot of great stuff. I know we love talking about taxes on this particular podcast. Please help me welcome Jonathan Cardella. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you so much. Good to be here. Yes, sir. Glad to have you with so we were talking pre-chat here a little bit about you and your background and what uh, what you've been been up to. And so I would love to hear from you about uh, where you've been and and what you've uh, been up to, and just give us a, a quick bio on you. Sure. Well, interestingly, you know, I uh, went to Vanderbilt University. I studied psych and neuroscience in particular, and was uh, pre-med at Vanderbilt. And got pretty deeply involved in uh, being a research assistant at doing some pretty interesting research at uh, the Institute for Developmental Neuroscience at Vanderbilt. And, you know, coming from a medical family, I was pretty sold on being a doctor and or research scientist. You know, I'd recommend anybody with that in mind take a position if they can, whether they're undergrad or grad student or however you can, is to, to spend some time in a lab and actually work on research before you make that commitment. Because what I found was that it, I was not a good fit for that work, even though it was extremely interesting and stimulating to me. How so? Like, why, why wasn't it a good fit for you? I think performing the actual work that, you know, basically I understood I was a research assistant, but I worked closely with my uh, PhD, my doc, you know, my, my doctor that was head of the research of being performed. And at the time we were looking at neuroplasticity and uh, NMDA receptors and how to, you know, we got, we had funding from NIMH and we were looking at basically how do you undo the effects of prenatal alcohol exposure and does an enriched environment, you know, postnatally, is it possible to get back some of that neuroplasticity and reverse the effects? And did some really interesting research there. It was fascinating to me, but what the actual work involved is extremely hands-on. I mean, the, the, you know, everything from habituating rats, which, yes, I understand docs may not do that. They actually do. To, you know, mounting, you know, slicing or mounting the, the slices of brain on slides, to, you know, whether you're just dealing with animals, right? Research animals, performing surgeries, euthanizing animals, like, you know, they're, and I understand if you're going to be a doctor, you better, you better be okay with that stuff. But I think if you're going to spend 30, 40 years doing this, you should really love it. And I found that it didn't allow me to channel the creativity and the skills that I had, you know, at hand. And in fact, I wasn't really good at this stuff. There's a, there's a lot of manual dexterity to performing research like this, just like there is also, you know, being a physician. So what happened after? So you, you figured it wasn't the path for you. So I had an epiphany and I was at first really depressed with the fact that 
I wasn't going to be, you know, I wasn't going to uh, be a doc like my father. But what I found is I did like technology a lot. I liked complex systems and I liked to understand the complexity and I liked, I, I liked technology essentially. And it was a, at the time it, it was a dot-com boom. And so, but I also really enjoyed psych and neuroscience and, and perception. And I found that there was a need in the emergence of the internet and the commercialization and, and being mainstreamed for folks to really think about how people perceive user interfaces, software in general, uh, companies uh, on the internet, and how do you optimize that experience and how do you deliver value to folks? And I found that really fascinating, you know, first studying psychology and neuroscience perception and then getting actually into like what quote unquote modern marketing is about and understanding that and then getting into computer science, um, in particular software development, application development, um, using these somewhat early, you know, web technologies as they were emerging and then entered Google into the scene, you know, around 1999, I guess it was probably still on Stanford campus, 2000. And it just became fascinated with that technology before it really was mainstreamed and studied it and, um, figured out where my passion was, you know, got my undergraduate and got out of there and, uh, moved to Park City, Utah, because I thought I had a great quality of life and that it was going to really explode. That whole area would explode post-Olympics, which were coming up in a few years at the time and started a consultancy in the subject matter that, you know, more so for small businesses and in a smaller community out there, but major business being done there in terms of, uh, tourism and real estate, you know, has over a billion dollar real estate market being, being 30 minutes out of Salt Lake City, which was pre sort of tech explosion there. It was actually a pretty good move to, to go there and to set up shop and ended up building an early online travel agency for, in particular, like uh, ski vacation packages and use that knowledge of Google and the internet to, to really market extremely aggressively post 9-11, essentially, and eat up a bunch of market share and, and sort of over four years create one of the most, you know, one of the most successful uh, online booking companies in the ski business and sold that to overstock.com. And decided I needed to move out uh, after a couple more years in, in Salt Lake City area, move out to San Francisco and play in the big leagues. It was a great move in that, you know, met a wife and had a family. But contrary to uh, what you might think, it's a really tough place to be in the startup game. And yeah, so at first it was interesting, but then we had the real estate crash. And, you know, with my luck, I was involved in online real estate creating a technology that used essentially real estate listing information and sales information to help folks figure out who they should hire to represent them in what might be the most important transaction or one of the most important transactions of their lives, you know, the home that they, they buy or the property they invest in. And we felt that, you know, that basically technology could predict better which agent's going to give you the best result in a transaction given their historical performance and given a property's attributes filed some patents and created some technology we called Agent Match and pretty much profiled every agent in the country, all, all 1.5 million residential real estate agents or close to 1.5 million. And, and it created quite a backlash, actually. Um, received a number of death threats and lawsuits. And so my, my startup wasn't as popular in the real estate community as maybe I had hoped. At the same time, a lot of consumers saw a lot of value in it. And we were able to help people, you know, a lot of people, I think, get better outcomes in a, in a really tough market uh, where it was very difficult to sell your home 2008, 9, 10. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, and so we were dealing with that, and uh, you know, we got nailed with a number of lawsuits, in particular copyright infringement by the multiple listing services, which technically I probably shouldn't go into. So you're, you're going into 
all this stuff and you know you're doing some some interesting things and sounds like you're getting hit along the way with doing this but made made a good deal of money you know as as you went about this so I would agree with that. Um, I, was, I was I was blessed and fortunate to be able to produce a number of companies that generated significant cash. So what? When did you get into the tax side of things? So fast forward to 2014, moved to Boise, Idaho, and just decided to help other companies develop their software and technologies, their software as a service, their mobile apps, their technology stacks, whether it was for for market or for uh, internal use and. During that time, I remembered the tax credit and started hearing more about it, you know, because there's legislation that comes out, new law will modify the credit, and it had become essentially more valuable. And, you know, I went to to obtain research and development tax credits for my startups that were developing uh, software, both my clients and some of my own uh, companies or investments within the company I was operating at the time. Let me stop you there for a second. So you obtained... A research tax credits. What, what does that mean? So no, what I'm saying is that I, I tried to um, figure out how to benefit from the credit as, a te- as somebody developing software and technology, both for myself and for other companies. And it was pretty confusing. And so I sought out professionals. And in short, I had a pretty bad experience trying to hire folks to help me to essentially what they call perform a tax study to qualify for the tax credits. If you do certain due diligence, certain accounting, certain documentations, you know, essentially required so that you know that you truly meet the the bar. And then, you know, with your CPA, you'll file certain forms to obtain the credits. And so I hired a firm to do that. You know, during shopping for the firms, I had a tough time. And then once I finally hired a firm, I had a very bad outcome and a very bad experience. And that's what got me into the business. I had learned enough about what went wrong to really understand it all and to understand the market and to see an opportunity realizing that the current market offerings for these services were not very favorable to the the taxpayer or to the person doing the, the research. So say you, you, know, you want to build a new medical device or a new software or app that streamlines, say, note-taking, you know, clinical notes. All of that can qualify for, for significant tax credits from the federal and, your, and state government's tax authority, you know, the, basically – from the IRS and your state tax authority, if you're paying state income tax, there's about 37 states that have a credit as well, and there's a federal credit. And so I realized there was a massive opportunity for entrepreneurs and startups and smaller businesses that was really being overlooked because of how difficult it was to obtain and essentially consume the services that would enable you to easily take advantage of the credit. So essentially, in my mind, it wasn't democratized, right? It was like a really hard thing to get, and it was expensive to get it. And so no one was taking it, is what I realized. And I wanted to disrupt that market and create a better offering by providing a different engagement structure by which companies could obtain the credit with less risk or no risk and no out-of-pocket expenses. So basically, you're, in your particular case, you're you're not a CPA or have gone through tax prep type things like you you don't prepare taxes am i understanding that right yeah we definitely don't do tax prep and we work hand in hand with the client cpa to just do that consulting and the work to obtain the tax credit that tax study 
to obtain the research and development tax credits. And we don't charge them anything out of pocket. We really partner with these companies, you know, essentially as a fiduciary to to deliver a great outcome for them along with their CPA, who then figures out how to use the credits to really reduce their tax basis or their tax exposure, rather, the total amount of taxes they're paying. So if you did research and development in the past and you didn't take the credit, you, you may still be able to amend your taxes if you paid income tax and get money back from the government, an actual cash refund. But other times the credit might be – it may be more advantageous to take it in the current tax year and the CPA will help make that determination based on your, your posture, so to speak. But the unused credits are carried forward for 20 years and companies can look back at least three or four years if not back to inception, whether you're a sole proprietorship, an LLC, an S-corp, a C-corp, partnership, it doesn't really matter. They all can take advantage of the credit and they may be able to go back to day one of research and development if they – are not profitable yet, as many startups aren't for, for a long time. And so, but, but nobody takes it because the name is research and development. And because we're dealing with docs, they're like, oh, you know, I'm not wearing a lab coat. I'm not actually publishing research. I don't qualify. And so there's a lot of misconception because that's absolutely false. So tell, tell us about that. I mean, you know, everything you were saying was about software and your experience in Silicon Valley. So this being a, a podcast focused on doctors, where does this apply as, as a physician? Well, there are a lot of docs on the side, I think, and, and some full-time getting involved in the startup game, whether that's producing, like I said, medical devices, new procedures, producing software or working with AI. You know, whether they're doing it full-time or part-time, they're getting involved in this area, whether they're making the investment themselves and or raising money, uh, they're involved with these companies. And if they're, you know, if they're pastor entities and they own a, a stake, they may be able to personally benefit directly. But if they have an interest in these companies and they're not pastor entities such as a C-Corp, the companies can benefit by reducing their, their income taxes and or payroll taxes significantly so they can pay more dividends to the folks, uh, to the shareholders, right? And now for a commercial break. Well, if you are anything like me, if as you go along your financial journey, you may be feeling confused sometimes about what to do. You're, you're hearing advice from this person and that person. You're, you're not really sure who to trust, what to turn to, and you're, you're feeling stuck, whether you're wanting to create multiple strategies of and streams of income, or you want to look over your stock portfolio, or you're looking for particular reviewing over your specific situation. It would be my honor and my pleasure to spend 30 minutes to help you for free. All you have to do is text the word strategy, S-T-R-A-T-E-G-Y, to 833-343-2986. Again, that's strategy, the whole word, to 833-343-2986. Thank you so much, and I look forward to talking to you soon. And now, back to the show. So, so really, the the kind of person you help is more someone that they might have a side hustle, but they're they're active in it. So, where where they are doing some sort of R and D or whatever. Right, and so we, you know, you mentioned like what is what is R and D then. 
you know, research and development, anytime you're going to commercialize a, a product, even potentially a service, or you're going to optimize the performance of a, of a commercial product or service, there's typically uncertainty on how to do it. Otherwise, everyone would be doing it. The way I would explain it simplest is most of this work where you're essentially doing some sort of development of a product procedure, optimizing an existing one uh, also would count. There's uncertainty, and there's some process of elimination of that uncertainty, whether that's by trial and error, whether it is by actual you know, published research or controlled experiments, or whether it's by just simply trying different alternatives, different methods. If it's involving science and or engineering, and there's uncertainty, and you have that process, of some process of eliminating uncertainty, and there's some documentation around, yeah, I tried this, it failed, or this was the result, or I wrote this code, I ran it, and then I had to iterate and fix it and change it and then run it again until it worked right. It doesn't matter if it succeeded or failed. You may even be optimizing a process by 100 milliseconds. If there was uncertainty involved, then there is engineering and or science, hard sciences involved, there's a high likelihood that there could be qualification for the research and development tax credit. And then it comes really down to what are the expenses, and the expenses are typically payroll, but they can also be supplies, uh, physical supplies, cloud computing. But it's really the payroll we're after. Who are the folks doing the research? And they don't have to have a particular title or credentials, but it's simply about the work they're engaged in. So yes, it is the research assistant who may not have a degree, who's supporting the doc, who's or the you know on the on the on the lowest level, it's like yeah, the person supporting the the brewer or the distiller could qualify as a, as an expense, as well as the distiller, as well as their manager, as well as all of the products they use or the the yeast and other, but only for their formulation and for their design of their product, not for the production runs, right? So if you're doing a procedure for the first time, there it's likely, you know, there may be some qualification for research development. But if you're simply re reconfiguring a known procedure, that, that doesn't qualify. So I'm just trying to think through how, who, who could use this well? And what, what does that look like? So Typical W-2 doctors that are working in a hospital system, this doesn't really apply to them, right, what we're talking about right now. This is private practice physicians. It probably doesn't apply to them, but applies to their employer such that their employer might claim some of their time as research and development if they are actually engaged in it or not. Their employer may miss that opportunity. It doesn't really apply to them except that if you offset somebody's salary by 10 or 20%, there may be some uh, ability for them to pay more. That may not necessarily happen. Um, But that W-2 doc, if he's involved in a small business on the side or a startup, those companies can really benefit. Um, Or the doc on the side carves out and actually works and gets some some technology patented as a sole proprietor. He may be able to benefit potentially. But typically you have some payroll of some kind, and it can be yourself if you're paying yourself. Can, can you give me some other examples, Jonathan, of the kind of things docs in private practice may be doing? I'm thinking of surgeons or maybe someone's in primary care, for example. You know, they have a primary care clinic. You know, what are the kinds of things those doctors are doing to obtain this credit? Yeah, sure. Let's see here. I had some notes for you as I was doing a little bit of my own research. As you know, I'm not personally uh, conducting tech studies as I manage the firm. But basically, 
there's a number of activities that could qualify. Obviously, any sort of drug design, clinical trials and what have you, any kind of medical device development, I think those are key in healthcare. Those are key opportunities. I think, you know, you have to look for funded research, though. If you're being funded by an outside party, say the NIH or whatever, that that portion may not qualify. It really comes down to who has the financial risk and significant rights to the research. That's the taxpayer that benefits. I think the biggest area is we've seen, at least I have personally seen a number of physicians getting involved in some sort of a of a, of a tech aspect around software, software development, building some new software application to assist physicians. For example, I worked with a physician on an application that would verify a patient's vision insurance and essentially um, extract the business rules from their policies to automate copay calculation. So that that's that one that one qualifies. But there's a lot of entrepreneurial physicians out there. So as so- someone's thinking about this. The major benefit being that they get a tax write-off already for the expenses, and then they're getting a credit on top of that. Am I understanding that correctly, or am I am I off on that? That's essentially right. I mean, they get the expense, they get the deduction for the expense, and then they get the credit on top of that. There have been some changes uh, to the tax code, in particular Section One Seventy Four, that requires them now to amortize those expenses potentially over five years. Not not the credit, but the expenses themselves around around. Uh, yeah, the credit carried forward for up to twenty years, and it's applied to either your current tax year. Like I said, it can be applied retroactively by amending previous tax years. And is that would be considered an an active business for somebody in order to qualify for it, which could offset if they have W two income some of that income. Am I understanding that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, actually, I mean, it can offset, if it's a pastor entity, the tax credit's capacity to the individual, and it could offset not just W-2, but all of the pastor income or distributions. As long as it's an active business being the, the major definition, right? So something that constantly loses money after a time period doesn't qualify for that anymore. It can still qualify if you lose money. The question then becomes, can you use the credits? And you can, there are uh, conditions if the company is less than five years old and it's a, essentially a smaller business uh, under about $5 million in revenue, it can use it against payroll tax. You know, we've seen startups that are never profitable, but when they exit, they, the, they are able to use the credits at that time. Absolutely. No, love it. And I think this is a very interesting niche subject and, and certain people would be awesome for them. It could be save a ton of taxes. Yeah. So if you're like developing a novel procedure, you know, medical procedure of some sort, and there are significant expenses going into that, that's an opportunity for the taxpayer that takes that risk, that paid the bill basically for that research or that developing the cost involved in developing the novel procedure and who significantly owns the rights to that research. So definitely a new or improved medical device or product or any kind of essentially custom solution that requires multiple iterations in order to to commercialize it may satisfy, you know, the requirements. Love it. Any other uh, major tax credits that you do work on that might be good to make folks aware of? The main one is the employee retention credit. Well, the R&D one is the, the main one, but the ERC is the other credit we handle. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions around that one. Folks thought, you know, originally if you took PPP, you couldn't take ERC. You can. You just have to back the PPP out that you received. And... 
you know, there's a qualified small business or I'm sorry, a recovery startup provision rather in the ERC that really it makes it so you didn't have to lose. If you if you started after um, I think it's February 15th, 2020, if you started a business after that time, you can qualify on a, you know, without actually having re- a reduction in, in revenue or a or a partial disruption of the business or full disruption of the business due to a government decree. So, so just to back up, the ERC, you know, most people think it's just based on revenue reduction. And technically, it's, you know, you look quarter by quarter in 2020 and 21 over 2019. Um, and, you know, for 2020, it had to be 50%. For 21, it had to be 20%. And a lot of folks just cut the analysis there. But the truth is that, you know, there are exceptions to that rule, such that is if the, if the company was completely disrupted, it had a shutdown, or if it had to, like, say, reduce its hours and services due to a government order of some sort, then they may qualify even if revenue wasn't reduced. And then if they if their recovery startup business and that they had less than a million in revenue a year and started after February 2020 or February 15th, and it's a little more complex than that, the analysis actually, but I'm just generalizing it, then they can qualify without the other two requirements. And so anyway, there is some complexity to it. And there are a lot of like what they call ERC mills out there that have a pretty significant conflict of interest with respect to how their engagements are structured. And so there's a lot of, you know, somewhat bad advice flying around and taxpayers being exposed. But the truth is, if you hire a professional firm that is ethical, there still may be a big opportunity there, even if you may have looked at, you know, even if you did a Google search and decided you didn't qualify. Very good. Very good. Uh, and anything else, Jonathan, we should be thinking about that you could pass on with all your wisdom of running different businesses and startups and these tax credits you want to pass on to us? Well, I think, I think from a tax mitigation standpoint, you know, it's traditionally been around real estate, research and development. And, you know, there's a few other opportunities now with energy credits, green credits. Yeah, I mean, if you're in private practice, obviously buy a building, look at uh, what is it, cost segregation and accelerating depreciation. I think that, you know, there are other vehicles that come and go that may or may not be good ideas. And, you know, I think buyer beware, be really careful with these strategies. Make sure that they're on the up and up and do your research. Uh, But there may be opportunities to reduce your taxes significantly, uh, especially if you're in private practice, obviously. And I think the right CPA makes all the difference. That's my personal experience. Yeah, that, that, that's my best advice on, on those items. Love it. And if, because you work with quite a few CPAs and you're not one. So that might be interesting to, to briefly talk about. You know, if, if you were looking for a really good CPA, uh, what, what would you be doing, knowing what you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, definitely not a CPA, but I've been paying taxes as a business owner for 25 years. And so uh, I don't know if that qualifies me for anything other than I've got some pretty good experience in working with different CPAs. And I would just say that it's not even the cost so much. There's just a lot of variability in what you'll get. And it's really helpful to do your own homework. It's helpful to get second opinions, sometimes third opinions or tertiary opinions, and to really, really do your homework and to try to bring down your effective tax rate, you know, legally and without exposing yourself to a bunch of risk meaning, you know, fines and penalties later on. And yeah, there's a lot of opportunities out there and some come and go, some are good ideas and some aren't. But I think that usually time spent in this area, uh, you know, pays off. I think, you know, if you're a W-2 employee, the opportunities are limited unless you're, you know, making investments on the side, you know, including real estate and others. 
you know, we invest in smaller companies and they take losses and they, pa- you know, they pass those losses through to us, you know, which you can benefit from until they're profitable and, and exiting and making you money. And if, if people want to reach out to you, learn more about these tax credits, if this may apply well to them, how can they find you? Yeah, sure. Uh, our website is strikeTax.com. That's S-T-R-I-K-E-T-A-X.com. There's a live chat, phone number. Uh, there's a calcula- estimator, calculator, and various ways you can get in touch with us. My email is John J-O-N at strikeTax.com. It's just J-O-N. And if you want to email me directly, I'd be happy to talk to you. Love it. Love it. Any final thoughts you want to leave us with? No, other than we appreciate all of our healthcare providers very, very much. Uh, keep doing the great work you're doing. Uh, I'd say that was the one thing I struggled with the most was, you know, I feel like it's a really good thing to dedicate your life to. And, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And so I, I appreciate everybody out there and all their great work. Mm-hmm. I second that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to everybody. Thank you for the for the opportunity to come on your show today. You bet. You bet. Well, that, my friends, wraps up another episode for the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast. Remember, slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, thank you, my friends, so much for listening to the last podcast. I am pleased to announce that I am now a completely independent financial advisor, where to the point now I can really integrate my financial planning practice with this podcast. If you might be looking for help, if you have found any of our information here interesting or relevant and you're looking for a second opinion, I'm making myself available for 30-minute strategy sessions. And if you want to arrange a time to meet with me to discuss your situation and see if we might be a good fit for one another, I'd like you to call our office and speak with Kyla. Our phone number is 612-284-2409. Again, that's 612-284-2409. And I look forward to helping you with your financial situation. And now for some lovely legal disclosures required by our lawyer friends. Investment advice is only offered in jurisdictions where Centurion Financial Strategies, LLC, Centurion is appropriately registered or exempt from registration. Our Form ADV Part 2 brochure can be obtained free of charge at advisorinfo.sec.gov by searching for our firm name or its unique CRD number, which is 316-454. This podcast is not a solicitation to provide advisory services in any jurisdiction which we're not appropriately registered or excluded. The information, statements, and opinions contained in this podcast have been obtained from or are based on information obtained from sources which we believe to be reliable, but we do not warrant or guarantee the timeliness or accuracy of such information. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as personalized investment, tax, or legal advice. Opinions expressed by any guest are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the firm's views. You should carefully consider your own financial circumstances and needs prior to making any investment in securities or purchasing any insurance products. As always, past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing in securities or really anything else involves the risk of loss. If by some chance in this particular podcast I mentioned insurance products, insurance products are backed by the financial strength and claims paying ability of an issuing insurance company. They may be subject to restrictions, limitations, and early withdrawal fees, which vary by issue. 
you should always consider the charges, risks, expenses, and investment objective of any insurance products before entering a contract. And that, my friends, wraps it up. Wish you all the best. Feel free to contact us with any info at www.daviddeniston.com. Thank you so much and have a good one. Bye-bye.